Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. This is MPB News. Hi, this is Karen Brown. Thanks for checking out the Mississippi Edition podcast. If you like what you hear, click subscribe, hit like, or leave us a comment if your app has that feature. Then find other MPB podcasts by searching MPB Think Radio on your favorite podcasting platform. Thanks. Good morning. It's 8.30 on Thursday, April 15th. I'm Karen Brown, and this is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. On today's show, clinics adjust to the temporary pause in the Johnson & Johnson vaccine. We examine how the new CDC guidance could affect the vaccination effort in the Magnolia State. Then the fate of medical marijuana is in the hands of the Mississippi Supreme Court following yesterday's oral arguments. We break down each side of the debate. Plus, in today's book club, a historian lays out the history and motives behind erecting monuments in homage to the Confederacy. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Clinics across Mississippi are adjusting their coronavirus vaccination plans as the state puts a temporary pause on the use of the Johnson & Johnson vaccine. Health officials say nearly 42,000 doses of the single-shot J&J vaccine have been given in Mississippi. That's about 3% of the nearly 1.5 million doses administered in the state. The pause is due to a number of J&J recipients developing a rare form of blood clots. At the HealthWorks Immunization Clinic in Hattiesburg, Dr. Rambod Rubash says the clots need to be fully investigated. He tells our Kobe Vance the pause will affect health providers' vaccination efforts differently. And the CDC's decision is an example of the robust monitoring all the vaccines are receiving. For us, it didn't significantly change um, our workflow because we are fortunate enough to have partnered with Forest General, me, us meaning the Hagsburg Clinic, and we had the capacity for the ultra-cold freezers and got the initial Pfizer vaccines and then the Moderna, and we had roughly about 700 patients vaccinated with the Johnson Johnson. The Johnson Johnson was unique in that it was a bit easier to handle. It can be stored in regular refrigeration. It was the one shot. It was just yet another tool in the arsenal with similar indications uh, from the Pfizer and Moderna. So we just added it on to what we are already doing. And now this week, the CDC has begun a study into the Johnson & Johnson vaccine to look at um, uh, several instances, six cases uh, cases nationally, none in Mississippi, of uh, a a blood clot. And um, because of that, 
Mississippi has stopped using the Johnson & Johnson vaccine temporarily until the CDC can complete that uh, study. Um, I'm curious how that's impacting your facility. Uh, is, have you all had to change course on anything? Well, we immediately stopped as well. So um, we're no longer um, vaccinating people with Johnson & Johnson's uh, vaccine. And fortunately for us, we have many other vaccine doses available with the Pfizer and Moderna. But essentially what it did is we complied, um, as was directed by the CDC and FDA, to pause all J&J vaccines. That's precisely what we did as well. And I know you all have been involved with uh, some community vaccinations um, and I know that the uh, Johnson Johnson vaccine is, has been a, a good tool in getting in those places and uh, only having to give that one shot and not have to go back. Um, this is, uh, do you think that if the Johnson and Johnson vaccine is not provided back or not approved to go back into uh, use, do you think that's going to make make it harder to um, to continue those processes or to get those vaccinations out into the community? Absolutely. It will be harder. Uh, that's not to say it's impossible, but for the reasons we were initially excited about this vaccine, um, it, it just makes it a good bit easier to administer, whether it's because of the refrigeration needs or the fact that it's a single dose. It was just a lot easier. This was the vaccine that we anticipated being available in most outpatient clinics, the one that would be available in most pharmacies. So the reach of this vaccine was theoretically going to be much broader than um, the more delicate mRNA vaccines and the ones that required the uh, ultra-cold refrigeration. And so how do you think this is going to be impacting um, the, the vaccination process? I know Mississippi has a, a large population that's very resistant to getting vaccinated at all. Yeah, I think it's unfortunate. Um, so the good news, I think, of this whole process is that our vaccine monitoring process is so robust that we're picking up effects that are on the order of one in a million. That's almost precisely the rate of um, this central venous sinus thrombosis uh, that's been seen here in the United States. In the past, that would have been very, very difficult to ascertain this quickly. But because we have these you know, fancy smartphones and you can um, opt into the vaccine adverse reporting system and doctors have this electronic access, this was picked up very, very quickly. And of course, this comes on the heels of what was found with the AstraZeneca vaccine in Europe where there are similar occurrences. So these two put together um, really caused the alarm. Now, the, the sad truth of this um, pandemic is people are going to develop antibodies one way or the other. It's either going to be via vaccine or via infection. And we do know that with infection, with this disease, COVID-19, there is a risk for blood clots and more uh, uh, risk than obviously we've seen thus far in these two vaccines. And those blood clots can be all over. So to answer your original question, this is a, a unfortunate setback in that we have one less tool, a much easier to use tool, potentially a much more widely accessible tool. Um, but it does underscore how robust the adverse event reporting system is and that we are able to pick up such a minuscule rate. And so how do you think it's going to – what are conversations going to have to be like with patients and uh, to keep people on board with the vaccination process? Well, um, it, it is worth noting that this one-in-a-million occurrence 
that we've detected with this vaccine has not been noted even in a single case in the other two vaccines. So whatever fears you may have had about the Johnson Johnson, um, they have been studied with the Pfizer and Moderna with over 180 million Americans vaccinated and not a single case uh, of this side effect. So um, it's really important to know, and this is a conversation we have with our patients, is you only have two choices in terms of your um, ability to get antibodies. You're either going to get this infection or you're going to get these vaccines. And the risks associated with these vaccines are much, much lower than the risks associated with infection. That's really the simple message that we're trying to um, give to patients over and over again. Dr. Rambod Rubash is director of Forest General Hospital Family Medicine Residency Program and physician at the Hattiesburg Clinic. Dr. Rubash, thank you for joining us today. My pleasure. Coming up, the fate of medical marijuana is in the hands of the Mississippi Supreme Court. Following yesterday's oral arguments, we break down each side of the debate. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Allison Walker, the lady auto mechanic, host of AutoCorrect. If you're enjoying this podcast, try my podcast, AutoCorrect. We help steer you in the right direction with your car problems. Find me on any podcast platform or at autocorrect.mpbonline.org. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Karen Brown. The fate of Initiative 65, the constitutional amendment ballot referendum establishing a medical marijuana program in Mississippi, rests in the hands of the Mississippi Supreme Court. And while the subject of the widely used plant may be controversial, the debate over 65 boils down to a legal argument over constitutional language. To get Initiative 65 on the statewide ballot, organizers gathered signatures from the five congressional districts that Mississippi used during the 1990s. Katie Pickett, counsel for the petitioner, City of Madison Mayor Mary Hawkins Butler, points to Section 273 of the Mississippi Constitution, the section stipulating the ballot initiative process to argue it is not possible Initiative 65 met the plain language requirements set forth in the law. Turning to the first and most important issue before the court, and that's the plain language of Section 273.3. And that section provides the signatures of the qualified electors from any congressional district shall not exceed one-fifth of the total number of signatures required to qualify an initiative petition for placement upon the ballot. In other words, the Secretary of State is barred from counting any signatures exceeding one-fifth from any one congressional district. The issue here is how many congressional districts does Mississippi have? If you ask any person on the street, the ordinary meaning of congressional district is a district from which a representative is elected. If you poll the average qualified elector in Mississippi, they will tell you we have four congressional districts. If you take one-fifth, 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 one-fifth from the four congressional districts, you get 80% of the total required number of signatures, not 100% of the total number required. 
Mississippi had five congressional districts in 1992 when Section 273 was adopted. After the 2000 census, the state was federally mandated to reduce the number of districts to four to adjust for reapportionment. Justin Metheny, counsel representing the Secretary of State's office, says the intent of establishing the districts is clear. Those are five recognized regions of the state. The Delta, the Pine Belt, northeast Mississippi, the capital city area, the, the, the river region, and the coast. It's, it's, and if you look at, like, for example, when you're talking about the purpose, a good indicator of the purpose of this that we have is, is Judge Mill's opinion in NRA Proposed Measure 20. In there, he says that it was, it, the purpose of the provision was to discourage regionalism. We also have the Magleby article that's cited in our brief. But I think that the two, the two the issues can coexist that you're bringing up, Your Honor. Using the five discourages regionalism because it solves the problem, like you point out, of having a, an initiative that's only supported by um, uh, people in DeSoto County or only supported by people in the Jackson area. It discourages the regionalism. But I see, separate and apart from that, uh, not a concern with the fact that the population shifts have may, moved around a little bit um, because you, you still have, you're still using the five districts and you're still meeting the purpose of making sure that one area of the state is not ganging up on another area of the state in order to enact initiatives. Pickett counters that defense, saying no one, not the court nor lawmakers, have the authority to change the meaning of congressional district as it's used in Section 273 of the Constitution. To better understand yesterday's hearing, our Michael Guidry joins Matt Steffi, professor of constitutional law at the Mississippi College School of Law. In part one of their two-part conversation, they break down the legal arguments presented to court. The root legal argument, and again, I underscore legal argument, because although uh, the mayor's brief suggests that has nothing to do with subject matter, uh, in the end, nobody files lawsuits like this over abstract principles of constitutional interpretation. But that's what the brief says. It's just, you know, it, this is really about, according to the brief, the abstract defense about the constitutional principle of strict construction or the like. The amendment process, the citizens initiative process, outlined in the Mississippi Constitution requires, and I'm quoting now, the signatures of the qualified electors from any congressional district shall not exceed one-fifth of the total numbers of signatures required to qualify. And the uh, argument is, well, that's now impossible, legally impossible to do because we don't have five congressional districts anymore because by virtue of redistricting at the federal level, we now have four. And so because the recipe laid out in the constitution, according to this is their argument is now impossible that sadly, and without regard to the subject matter, this has to, this amendment has to fail. In fact, I believe the original request was not to have the votes counted. Um, because that would save the court the awkward uh, and always difficult position of striking down something favored by a great majority of voters. The counsel, the petitioner, um, yes. was answered a lot of questions about the language, uh, especially the yes. language of congressional district. When when you're looking at 
you know, such an abstract interpretation of congressional text. Let's look at their argument for a a moment. Um, What what did she argue was the context of congressional district in this this section of the Constitution that dates back to 1992 when there were five congressional districts in the state? Well, that it means now it means the, the language has to be given its plain meaning, and we have four congressional districts now. And so this position, this provision has to be amended and updated or can't be used as written. On the other side of, of things, the, the counter argument was that, um, that these districts, while called congressional districts, are, are geographical considerations that were yeah. drawn in 1992 uh, and that are still referred to and used because the Constitution hasn't been updated. Um, what do you see uh, when you dissect that argument, uh, how it pertains to the, the challenge to this case? Well, I, the, 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 I believe, on behalf of the Secretary of State, they have an extremely strong argument in a variety of ways. One is that congressional districts meant what they meant at the time this provision was put into the Constitution, that it was just a shorthand way for geography then existing, right? We haven't lost our ability to put those lines on the map. Um, That congressional district was merely a reference to geographic diversity throughout the state, to divide the state up in uh, in these smaller geographic blocks so that a constitutional amendment would have to have broad support across the state before it was put on the ballot. Moreover, uh, the relevant section of the Mississippi Code, 2315-1037, hasn't been changed, went into effect uh, at the time uh, this amendment process was put in the Constitution, and still defines the relevant five congressional districts. So their argument is that if you look either at what those words meant when that amendment process was added to the Constitution, or look at what they still mean by reference to the governing state statute, we can still use these geographic uh, elements uh, today, that they are just as available to us today as they were uh, in the early 1990s. And that surely the initiative process was not put in the Constitution with a potential expiration date any time our congressional delegation either reduced or increased in size, as they do from time to time, right, that, that maybe we get a sixth a seat in Congress, or as happened, we lose one and drop to four, it would be odd beyond words if we had an initiative process only in those windows of opportunity where we had five members of the U.S. House of Representatives. Matt Steffi, professor at the Mississippi College School of Law with our Michael Guidry in part two of their conversation. If this lawsuit had been brought on the voter ID amendment, Uh, I don't think we'd see this lawsuit, certainly not from this constituency. 
the role politics and the controversial subject of medical marijuana is playing in the Initiative 65 debate. Coming up in today's book club, a historian lays out the history and motives behind erecting monuments in homage to the Confederacy. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Hi, I'm Walt Grayson. You can now listen to the wild, weird, and wonderful stories of Mississippi with Mile Marker. Some of the big names that travel up and down the highways, obviously Elvis and Johnny Cash, and you had Jerry Lewis, Carl Perkins. Join me as we hit the roads of Mississippi on Mile Marker. Johnny Cash suggested that Carl write a song called Blue Suede Shoes that was all kind of created with Aaron Amory. You can listen by going to mpbonline.org slash radio or by using your favorite podcasting app. This podcast is a local production of Mississippi Public Broadcasting and depends on the support of listeners like you. If you can, please donate today at mpbonline.org. And thanks. This is Mississippi Edition. I'm Karen Brown. Before Confederate monuments began coming down in recent years, to the consternation of some and the jubilation of others, the history of when they began to come up is long. In her book, No Common Ground, Karen L. Cox talks about heritage versus history and how women took the lead to erect the largest number of monuments before the turn of the 20th century. The United Daughters of the Confederacy was probably one of the most powerful Southern women's organizations of their day, beginning in 1894 and for several decades after. They are the group primarily responsible for building the vast majority of monuments across the South. In terms of monuments being erected, did that mostly start in 1894? There have been Confederate monuments built in every decade since the Civil War ended, including the last decade. So there are monument building phases, early period, ladies' memorial associations, those went into cemeteries. Later, they become more celebratory. They're put out on main thoroughfares. And then when the United Daughters of the Confederacy is formed, their efforts are probably most visible on the grounds of courthouse lawns or at state capitals. I guess I'm a little surprised that it's a women's organization that ended up with the most monuments. Where were the men? The men were helping fund it. The women took this on as their cause. White men in the South were busy being businessmen or they were legislating Jim Crow or whatever that might have been. But the women took this on as their project. And men sort of stepped aside and allowed them to do that because it's sort of difficult to think about men erecting monuments to ancestors who've been defeated. And so women do this in a different way and recast their ancestors as heroes and romanticize them. And monuments are are part of their work. And the way you should think about these monuments is that monuments are memorials. So they're really not about history. They're about memory. That's been women's work since the end of the Civil War. More recently, though, the roles have been reversed, and you see neo-Confederate male organizations, particularly the Sons of Confederate Veterans, have been behind the more recent monuments that have gone up since 2000. You also hear the word heritage a lot with the reasoning behind erecting monuments. How does that word fit into history? They're not the same things. Heritage is often shaped by memory, and memories are often faulty. Almost 99% of the time when people are talking about monuments as representing heritage, they're talking about white Southern heritage, and they negate the fact that there are black Southerners living in the region too. So heritage is this little tricky word 
It's not history. There are many statues or monuments honoring Robert E. Lee, and yet you say in your book that he was against erecting monuments. Why was that? He thought that this would keep the wounds of war open. If you put up monuments and you glorify the war and through these monuments, he wanted that to end. He thought that it would be better for the nation if everyone moved on. We certainly know that the murders in Charleston was a catalyst for a movement to remove statues and monuments. Were there any organized efforts prior to that? There were. There were discussions of that kind of thing. I think one of the earliest discussions that I discovered was in Shreveport, Louisiana in uh, 1987, when the local paper actually wrote an editorial saying that both the Confederate flag and the monument on the grounds of the parish courthouse should be removed. That obviously didn't happen, and it's only now being removed in 2021. Most of the time what you found is that there have always been critiques of Confederate monuments, even back in the 19th century, from African Americans. And these monuments serve as places of confrontation. I write about that in Mississippi in 1966 during the Meredith March, uh, March Against Fear. Um, as, as the march would enter certain towns, they would coalesce around a Confederate monument, and that became uh, a place where they're sort of reclaiming the space that the monument has dominated for over a century. So there are those kinds of things that are happening. It's really been since the Voting Rights Act of 1965, once African-American representatives were elected to city councils, county government, and the like, those individuals, once they came into those positions, began to question the existence of Confederate iconography on the grounds of government, whether that be the battle flag or Confederate monuments. Karen L. Cox is the author of No Common Ground, Confederate Monuments and the Ongoing Fight for Racial Justice. Thank you very much, Karen. Thank you, Karen. This has been Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Thanks for listening to the Mississippi Edition podcast from MPB News and MPB Think Radio. Don't forget to subscribe if you haven't already. And if your app lets you, leave a comment or review. We really do appreciate it. Remember, you can always get in touch with MPB News on Facebook and Twitter, and fresh episodes of the podcast are posted every weekday morning. I'm Karen Brown. Thanks for listening. This is Mississippi Edition from MPB Think Radio.